If you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 21. Where do I start with such an amazing story? We're going to start, and we're just going to read two passages. The beginning of the week, or just prior to the beginning of the week, and the end of the week. The beginning of the week, I'll tell about just prior to the week. We'll actually start with the beginning of the week, and we'll look at what took place uh, at the end of the week. Starting in Matthew chapter 21, I'm starting with verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples and saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly, sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt and laid their clothes on them and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? The multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth from Galilee. Now turn with me over to John chapter 19. That's the beginning of the week. John chapter 19. John chapter 19, starting in verse 19. John 19, verse 19. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priest, the Jews, said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews. But he said, Pilate said, he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. And the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier and a part of the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from top uh, in one piece. And they said among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. And then look at verse 30, same chapter. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Father, we ask now that you would just speak by your spirit, the spirit that was anointed or that anointed your son, your only begotten son in his ministry on this earth, your spirit that ministered to Jesus long before the cross, and your spirit that ministered even as he was on the cross. Lord, we ask that you would speak 
Yes, we've heard these things before, but that they would be new, that they would be fresh. Lord, that they would penetrate deep, and Lord, that uh, we would be revived in our amazement at such amazing grace and how sweet the sound. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. According to John chapter 12, Jesus came to Bethany, not Bethpage, where the, where the cold of the donkey came from. But Jesus came to Bethany, which is just outside of Jerusalem, six days before the Passover, also called Pesach in Hebrew. There in Bethany, he had a meal with Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, Mary, You've heard of her, right? There's a couple of Marys, but this is Mary, the sister of Martha, and other disciples. It was at that meal, six days before Passover, just outside of Jerusalem, it was at that meal that he was anointed with the costly spikenard oil by Mary, that was Martha's sister, and you know, you might remember that she used her hair to actually wipe his feet. People got rather indignant, particularly Judas, about it, which was a fraudulent indignation on Judas's part that this should have been sold or given to the poor. Now, Jesus told those that were there that day that she had kept this oil for quite some time to anoint him for burial, six days before the Passover. See, he had been appointed to death. Even though he had said this before, even though he had told people, it went over a lot of heads. It must be, I don't know what he's talking about, but now she takes this expensive oil and anoints his feet, washes her hair, and Jesus tells all of them, she's anointed me for my death. Now, John also records that at that same time, there in Bethany, There, the same day that Jesus has this meal at the house of Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, at this same exact time, the chief priest and those that work for him have been plotting not only to kill Jesus, they are are on full-scale plotting mode. This is not something that, oh, I wonder if we'll ever... No, they are trying to define the perfect outline. They are determined to kill Jesus, but not just Jesus... They were also, according to John, plotting to kill Lazarus. Why? Because he had been raised from the dead, and it was attracting quite a crowd from towns all around him. You've got to come see. This guy was dead. His body stank. And Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, and this was also something they were going to deal with. Lazarus needed to also be killed, all because of the following that had begun. Now, the day after the meal, the day after the meal, so that that was six days before, the very day after the meal and the anointing that took place in Bethany, now this is also recorded by John, John chapter 12. Now, five days, remember the, the meal took place six days before the Passover. John says that then five days, the following day, five days before the Passover, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And we just read, John records it as well. We read it from Matthew. Uh, But Jesus rides into Jerusalem 
on the foal of a donkey. That means the donkey was young, which is a miracle in itself because anyone that uh, you don't have to know much about donkeys, but people will use phrases like, you are as stubborn as a mule, right? Well, there's other things, don't be, you know, there's other things that people say about donkeys too. Why? Because they're very stubborn and ornery until they're broken in. And this foal, this young donkey, had never been sat on, had not been trained. And if you try and sit on a donkey that's not been trained to be sat on, they don't like it. They don't just take it, they make sure you come off, right? But Jesus has power over everything, right? Which is a miracle in and of itself. People that would have known say, this donkey, no one's ever even sat on it, and it humbled itself just like Jesus was humbling himself. He didn't ride into Jerusalem on a horse. That was what kings did. Kings would ride in on horses. Later, Jesus will come back on a horse, but not this entry. This entry was humble. You ever seen the face of a donkey? They look much more humble than a horse. There is some, if you ever want to see just some wonderful pictures, just type in a search engine, young donkeys. They're adorable when they're young, and this is like the adolescent donkey that's never been sat on, but it humbles itself because the one sitting on the donkey is also humble, but also God that says, I have need of you. Matter of fact, when he went to the people to say, hey, when people ask, why are you taking, actually that takes the donkey, the young donkey, and the donkey's mother, it's recorded there, there's two, and it's, it's believed that the, the older helps calm, uh, helps calm the foal. But either way, they said, you know, why are you taking our donkeys? And they said, the Lord has need of them. Disciples of Christ said, then take them, use them. But this is five days before the Passover as he enters. He's riding on this young donkey. The crowds are crying out. Remember, many people are now aware. Multitudes, thousands are aware, even beyond uh, Jerusalem, but all the way up into Galilee where he did the vast majority of his ministry. Many of those have come down for Passover. So the people in Galilee where he did 80 plus percent of his ministry, they were familiar with his miracles. They had seen him do all these great things. And then right near Jerusalem, Bethany, just outside the city, Lazarus had been raised from the dead. So thousands of people are now waving palm branches, putting their clothes on the ground, five days before Passover saying, the son of David, this has got to be the guy. This has got to be the king we've been looking for crying out with their palm branches, rejoicing, praising him, Hosanna. It's just a short ways, as I mentioned, from Bethany to Jerusalem. Now, if you're coming from Bethany, there was, a, there was an ancient highway that kind of cut across the Mount of Olives from Bethany. And then last year I put up some slides. I may put some up next Sunday. I don't know yet. But um, as you, the little highway that comes across the Mount of Olives the Mount of Olives is directly due east from the temple, and the temple has an east gate that faces the Mount of Olives. You can still see the east gate today. It's not the same one that was there then. It's built on the exact same spot. But the east gate that was, enters the temple, you come that, uh, down that little highway, and there was an east gate uh, entrance that would actually come across a bridge and right into 
the temple, and they're laying down all this clothing and palm branches and all these things, and all of this is taking place five days before the Passover. That would make this the 10th of Nisan, or Aviv, as it's also known, in the first month of the Jewish calendar. Now, why is that important? Well, when the Passover was given to Moses, it was five days before that they were commanded to take and select the lamb for their household. Each person on the 10th of Nisan or the 10th of Aviv, same month, two different names for the same month, they were to take their Passover lamb. It had to be spotless and without blemish. But it had to be selected on the 10th, and then you would actually kill the Passover lamb on the Passover. Five days later, in the sun up or the sundown to sundown Jewish uh, day, four days on our day, but five days on, on the Jewish calendar day. And the way they count Jewish in Jewish counting, days are counted from the start day you're on to the end day. So when it says five days, that includes the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, five days. You know, they don't have a, in the Jewish mindset, there's not a zero start date. There's only a one, and it goes through. So you have the five days starting on the 10th of Nisan. And so Jesus enters on the 10th of Nisan on Lamb Selection Day. That's kind of odd, isn't it? that Jesus enters on Lamb Selection Day. If you're taking notes, I've titled our study and our time in God's Word today, The Passover Lamb. The Passover Lamb. Look at three things in Jesus' fulfillment, which is so important to you and me, His proclamations, His presentation, and His purchase. His proclamations plural, his presentation, and his purchase. His proclamations had been taking place over the course of a three-year ministry. Remember, prior to Jesus' ministry, we were, we're in the early part of Luke, we saw that for the first around 30 years of his life, we don't know the exact amount, but at about the age of 30, he entered his full ministry and then declared himself to be the Son of God baptized by his relative John the Baptist. All that took place about the age of 30. But prior to that, he lived a quiet, humble life. He was not making proclamations. He was simply living righteously as an open witness. But his ministry in those three years, he would make many proclamations all to be understood and someday in the Scriptures as we read. But over the course of his three-year ministry, he had there had been many proclamations made by Jesus, but there had also been proclamations made about Jesus, both by Jesus and proclamations made about him. They were all part of the complete testimony that his perfect life proclaimed. God was in it all. An angel, let me give you some examples. Some of the proclamations about Jesus, but not by Jesus. One of them, right at the beginning, it was an angel that proclaimed to a group of shepherds the night of his birth that a Savior had been born 
and that he was Christ, which means Messiah, or the anointed one, the Lord. An angel made that proclamation. And then shortly after, a whole heavenly host appeared, and the shepherds were pretty sure this was big. They were pretty sure this is the Messiah. There's no way that any man would have a heavenly host in the sky, and it's told not only would he be the Savior, but exactly going to Bethlehem. That's where he's at. John, the son of Zacharias, also called John the Baptist, three full years before Jesus' final entrance into Jerusalem, he had proclaimed way at the beginning of Jesus' ministry when John said, there comes one, I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal strap. That ought to, as a believer, if you ever get prideful about, look at me and Jesus now, I've really arrived. This ought to keep you in a good place. Jesus said about John, no greater man had ever, ever been born a woman. John said of himself, I'm not worthy to even touch his sandal strap. The dusty, lowest part, down at the ground level, I'm not even worthy to loosen it, touch it. But John said when he saw Jesus, he said, John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You see, the Passover Lamb was proclaimed fairly early, wasn't it? John said it. Anyone there would have said, I wonder why he just called him a lamb. doesn't look like a lamb. Who calls a person a lamb? Hold the lamb of God. The Passover lamb had been sent from heaven by God to the earth on behalf of the sins of the world. Does this story ever get old to you? Well, I pray it doesn't. Early in Jesus' ministry, he would confirm. He made his own proclamations too, did he not? <laughs> he, made, he made some statements that no one else could ever make. But he would proclaim that he, the Son of Man, we just saw it a few weeks ago uh, with the paralytic, he proclaimed that he had the power to forgive sins. That set off a few people. Who of flesh and blood can possibly forgive sins? John's Gospel records what would come to be known, you might have heard of this before, the seven I am statements of the book of John. The seven I am statements of Christ, they begin in John's chapter 6. And there's seven affirmative statements of exclusivity. In other words, it can only be one man period, that fulfills these things. Jesus claiming his exclusivity with these seven I am statements that no one else could do. Not great prophets, not great high priests, nobody, not great kings, nobody could claim these seven I am statements but the Son of God. He said these seven things. I am the living bread. Now, you can actually, when you write I am for each of these, you can write capital I, capital A-M. Remember when God said to Moses, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? Say, I am sent you. Okay. 
I am sent. Uh, Moses, who sent you? I am. Who's that? He needs none of us. He's all-encompassing. But Jesus says, I am the living bread. I am the light of the world. Second I am statement. I am the door. Third I am statement. I am the good shepherd. Fourth I am statement. I am the resurrection before the resurrection. Fifth I am statement. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Sixth I am statement. And then he says, I am the true vine. Because once you're saved, you need to be discipled. You need to be in Christ being fed and nourished. That's why you're here this morning. I'm the vine, he said, the true vine. Seven I am statements, seven illustrative titles that proclaim that Christ alone is the source of light and life. There is no other source. Amen? It's it. Seven I am statements. Now, there's actually other I am proclamations in the book of John and the Gospels. But those seven, the why they're called the seven I am statements is because they all begin identically the same. I am the, I am the. That's why they're called the seven I am statements. But there's other I am statements that Jesus makes. So there's really more than seven, but those seven have the exact same uh, structure in the way they're laid out. He made other I am uh, proclamations, and without question, one of the greatest and most important is found in John chapter 8, verses 23 and 24. Let me read it to you. This is another I am statement. It's not one of the seven, because it doesn't follow the same sentence structure of the seven I am statements, but don't be misunderstood. It is an important I am statement. Oh, everything Jesus says is important, but this I am statement is critical to our salvation, just as the other seven are as well. He says this, I am from above. You are of this world. By the way, that's every one of us. He was speaking to a group of people, but this applied. Jesus says, I'm from above. You're from this world. I am not of this world. There's two I am statements in a row there. Therefore, I said to you that you will die in your sins... For if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Three I am statements in in addition to the seven in one short message that he gives. I'll read it again. It's so important. Jesus speaking to a group of people. This would be to someone at the mall in Chesterfield County. This would be someone at the hospital. This would be someone at the ball game. This would be someone hiking the Blue Ridge Trail this morning. This would be someone cutting their grass. This would be someone who is sleeping. Any person on planet Earth, if Jesus is talking to a group of people, this little exchange applies, where Jesus can say to any person, any continent, I'm from above, you are from this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I said to you, you will die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What a statement by Jesus. Could could that be any more exclusive? That he says, let me explain this to all of you. You all were born of mom and dad. You're all of this world. 
I have an earthly mother, but I have a heavenly father. I'm not from this world. And unless you believe in me, you'll die in your sins. Well, I don't even believe in sin. Doesn't matter. Right? The second a person dies, the second they meet God face to face, they realize it was all true. Every word of it. Why did I believe the New York Times but not the Scriptures? Why in the world did I believe People Magazine but not the Scriptures? Why did I believe what someone posted on Facebook but not the Scriptures? By the way, people post some of the most goofy, not, I I will see things sometimes and I'm like, uh, you ever heard of Snoops? Just type in and you'll find that some of the things that people sent aren't even facts. They're not facts at all. Find it like, like made up stories, but Jesus is saying, look, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you the heavy, heavy story here. The heavy news is this. You were born in sin and you'll die in sin except one thing. I am, I am, I am. Three times he says I am. If you believe in the I am, everything changes. He had proclaimed the kingdom of God. All throughout his ministry, he proclaimed the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is coming, he said. He had come down from God the Father, and he had proclaimed that unless one is born again by the Holy Spirit, they could not, they would not enter the kingdom of God. That was his proclamation again and again and again. Throughout his ministry, he had proclaimed that every person, every single person, not your grandfather, not your great-grandfather, not your mom and dad, every person must repent and turn from sin and personally believe on his name. He said in John 3.36, this is a wonderful verse, for those of us who have been born again, our names written in the land. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. Not will have, has, possesses currently. He who believes has everlasting life, believes on the Son. So as the multitude, as they had gathered to joyfully uh, welcome his entry into Jerusalem, cutting down branches, cutting down palm branches, putting their clothes down, just bowing down, Hosanna, son of David, worshiping Jesus. They were welcoming him into Jerusalem. But were they welcoming welcoming their Redeemer? Or did they see Jesus as something else? Were they welcoming the one that would cleanse them from sin? Or did they see Jesus as holy something else? Sadly, the vast majority saw him as completely different than what he had continually proclaimed. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and life. You will die in your sins unless you believe in me. All of that spoke to the personal problem we have of sin. But they were looking for Moses number two. Remember what happened in the Passover? Remember, Jesus comes in on the day that the lambs are being selected, the 10th of Nisan. It's lamb selection day. And Jesus says, lamb selection day. Look at me. Remember what John said of me early in my ministry. Behold the lamb. Lamb selection day. He's entering, but they're singing king selection day. Son of David. Hosanna. 
Hosanna is transliterated from the Hebrew. It means save us. But they didn't say save us from sin. They're like, save us from Caesar is what they were saying. See, Moses was the first great... I mean, they loved Moses. Because Moses liberated them from Pharaoh. Even though it was really God, people always want to glory in a man more than God. God did not... Moses didn't liberate them from Egypt... God liberated them from Egypt, but they venerated Moses. Moses did it. Moses liberated. David, David wiped out the nations around them and set up the kingdom. We want a David. We want a Moses. And Jesus, if you can fit the bill, we'll make sure you aren't on a donkey next time. You'll be on a horse. We'll, we'll follow you. If you've come to Jerusalem to, to go ahead and say, Rome, I'm serving you notice. A new king is in town. And I'm a king that can raise people from the dead. I'm a king that can heal people. I'm a king that can do all that. People are like, double thumbs up. The people had proclaimed him as son of David. They wanted another great king. A second Moses. A man that had broken the back of Egypt. But David and Moses would have been the first to tell him, no, 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 you don't understand. The blood of the Passover was for our sins. David would have said, look, I'm a wretched man. I, I committed adultery and murder. I deserve hell. You don't understand. You don't need me, and you don't need Moses. You need a lamb. You need a lamb. It's Passover season, they would have told him. Moses and David would have risen up from the grave and stood right... Of course, Moses does stand with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. He actually helped comfort the Lord just, day, just prior... Not just days, but just not too far from the cross. They then proclaimed, as we saw in our text in Matthew 21, 11, So the multitude said, remember, there's thousands of people from all over the ancient world that are Jewish. People have come from faraway countries that are Jewish for Passover. They've come up from Africa. They've come over from the Far East. They've come down way up north out of Europe and parts of the Mediterranean area. Many Jews would save a long time to make it to one of the Passovers in Jerusalem. This was a pilgrimage. In America, we don't understand the word pilgrimage. Myrtle Beach doesn't count. Right? Pilgrimage. Disney World, where you save for five years to go, or whatever it is, maybe. But, uh, but there's nothing, nothing spiritual about that. But they had saved up a long time. Thousands, in fact, more than thousands. Millions. A couple of million, at times, would all converge on Jerusalem to celebrate the deliverance from Egypt that was centuries earlier. The application of the blood. So Jesus is there, and there's thousands upon thousands upon... The city is so packed, you can hardly move in places. And if you've been to Jerusalem, you know how narrow it is to begin with in, in the old city there. Uh, and so the place is packed, and thousands are there, thousands upon thousands, but the Galileans and some of the Judeans that had been following Jesus, some of them that had sat and been fed by him when he took a few fish and loaves, 
feeds everybody. They had seen, some of them had seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. The multitude's saying, hey, we're from Athens. We're Jews from Athens. Some are saying, hey, we're Jews from Tarsus. Some are saying, hey, we're Jews from Egypt. Who is this guy that you guys are worshiping? Why are you calling him the son of David? Why are you saying Hosanna? Who is he? Some would say, in turn, him saying, this is Yeshua. He's the prophet from Nazareth. Okay. What did all that mean? Now, some of them that proclaimed him, sadly, though, prophet, Moses was a prophet. David was a king. Moses was a great prophet. David was a great king. They wanted the great prophet. They wanted the great king, but they didn't necessarily want their sins forgiven. See, it's possible. They even said where he was from. It's possible to know Jesus' name, his title, where he's from, and not know Jesus at all. Isn't that sad? Because many of these would soon say, give us Barabbas. They wouldn't, they wouldn't love him as much a few days later as this day. Because if he disappoints in what they wanted, a lot of people want something from Jesus. I would come to Jesus if he's going to get me a new Mercedes. I would come to Jesus if my life would be perfect. I would come to Jesus if you know, I no longer had to struggle with anything. That's never what Jesus said, take up your cross. People didn't even understand what he meant when he said it because he hadn't gone to the cross yet. What in the world is he talking about? Take up your cross. But as Jesus enters Jerusalem, for this week of Passover, he has come to fulfill precisely what he proclaimed in Luke 9.22. This is another one of his proclamations. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests. Notice that he is not just saying, uh, just these, these are specific statements. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and be raised the third day. Jesus is saying, this is what's going to go down. And it has to go just like this. When he enters Jerusalem as the Passover lamb, he's entering to fulfill what he said in Luke 9.22. Let's look at his presentation. Jesus, by the time he's entered Jerusalem this final week, again, he's already raised the dead. He's healed the lame. He's given sight to the blind. He's healed leprosy. He's fed more than 5,000 plus at least twice. That's what's recorded. He's walked on water. He's, also, he's already fulfilled numerous prophecies. He's fulfilled numerous prophecies in his 33 years, beginning with his birth. Just the week of his birth fulfilled numerous prophecies. And throughout his life, he continued the vast majority of his fulfillment would come in the final week. But quite a few have already been fulfilled up until this time. This final week of the Passover and the week of Passion that we call it will fulfill many of the others. But in 1958, Moody Press published a book written by Peter W. Stoner entitled Science Speaks. And the author, who was a Ph.D. in mathematics, was one of the founders of the American Scientific Affiliation. And the book, it was based on the science of probability. If you've ever taken statistical math or, or you have dabbled in it at all, you know about probability when you look at 
You can look at statistical odds of something. And what uh, in his book, it set out the odds that any one man, that any one man, think of the exclusivity of Jesus, any one man in all of history could fulfill just eight of 60 of the major prophecies of Jesus. And there was more than 60, but just eight of 60, that one man could fulfill just eight of 60 of the major prophecies of Jesus. And the mathematical probability that, it, that he came up with was 10 to the 17th power, which is to take the number 10 and add 16 additional zeros to it. Say, well, I still don't know. That, that doesn't compute it. That's 10 with 16 additional zeros, 10 to the 17th power. What does that mean? What would that look like? Well, the author claims that if you took 10 to the 17th power and converted it to silver dollars, it would be enough to cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. Have you ever been to Texas? You ever driven across? I have. I've driven across I-10. Texas is a big state. Two feet deep of silver dollars, and this would be the equivalent of blindfolding yourself and saying, you get one pick for there's a marked silver dollar there. That would be the odds of filling just eight of the 60-plus prophecies of Jesus. There was more than 60, quite a few more, actually. Uh, actually, the more people say the Bible, the more they see fulfillment that they didn't even realize. We get to heaven, we'll be like, that was about you too? Yeah. You thought it was this number. I've seen as high as 300. I've seen 60-some, but you can count yourself easily. If you don't even know, if you just been in our studies in a few years, you, you probably could think of 40. Just start writing them down, things that he was prophesied to fulfill. But the evidence that Jesus was the Son of God, it was already overwhelming even before he entered Jerusalem. The, the, the disciples were convinced. Peter said, thou art the Christ. They didn't need probability studies. They didn't need any more miracles. They knew they had followed the Lord. But by the way, even their faith would be rocked, wouldn't it? As was required with the Passover lamb. When the Passover lamb was selected on the 10th, each family, Jesus rides in on Passover lamb selection day. It's lamb select. Everyone has to select their lamb. The lamb had to be kept for five days, four days on our calendar, but five from sundown to sundown days in the Jewish calendar. They had to keep the lamb until the 14th of Nisan, which would be Passover, and the lamb had to be inspected in case there was a blemish they didn't spot at first. So every day you're inspecting the lamb until you're totally convinced there's no spot, no blemish in this lamb. And as was required, Jesus comes as the Passover lamb to present himself to the rulers of the people that he would be inspected prior to Passover as being the true king of Israel, the son of David, which they proclaimed. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them for that. He really is the son of David. He really is the king. And he's the true high priest. But he's also come, get this, Jesus has come to inspect them too. Jesus is not only coming to be inspected, he is coming to be, he's presenting himself as the spotless lamb. He says, go ahead, check me out over these next few days. If you can find any error, go ahead. But I'm inspecting you too. 
You know, this is the way God... You know, people say, I want proof that God exists. God looks down and says, I'm watching you too. The only problem is, it's not an even match, is it? When Jesus is doing his inspection, whatever he says will go. When everyone else does their inspection, it, it's only fulfilling what he's already predetermined must take place. He already said, I'm coming to lay down my life. There is something of a back and forth, if you will, that takes place in the days leading up to the cross. Jesus is inspected or observed, but no error is found in him. Nobody can find a flaw. Nobody can find an error. Nobody can catch him in his words. They literally tried to catch the Son of God in his words. Let's see. He can read your thoughts, and you're trying to catch him in his words. He created you, and you're trying to catch him in his words. People trying to outsmart the Lord, they're really outsmarting themselves, uh, but that would be... The fact is they're not even outsmarting themselves. They're self-deceiving themselves. But Jesus inspects Jerusalem. He, expect, he inspects the temple. It says he goes in and looks around. He goes in and looks around. This is when he first comes in. We don't have time to read all the different texts. I wish we had time, but it would take weeks to go through all the different texts in the four Gospels because each of them shed a little different light. But Jesus walks in. What he does is he looks all around the temple after he's ridden in on the foal of a donkey. He looks all around, and then he returns to Bethany. He inspects everything he sees. The next day, he comes back to the temple. He did an inspection when he came in. You inspected me. I'm inspecting you. He comes back the next day. And if you recall, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he had done a cleansing of the temple. Because at the very beginning of his ministry, he made a whip of cords, and he drove out the money changers. At the beginning of his ministry, he flipped over their tables and told them, take this stuff out of my father's house. Um, that made quite an impression on Jerusalem when he did that three years prior does it a second time. He comes in on the fold of the donkey. He inspects the temple. It's late in the hour, the Bible tells, Scripture tells. It's late in the day. He goes back to Bethany the following day. The first thing he does on the second day coming back in, which would be the 11th of Nisan, he comes back in to be inspected. Before he's inspected, he says, I've got something I need to do again. The temple, he cleans it out again. He flips over the money uh, uh, changers tables what had happened was what he had done three years earlier they just brought the garbage right back in this is something that Christian when Jesus tells us something needs to go we cannot bring it back in it has to stay out he was, what he had did at the beginning of his ministry was he was illustrating their rebellion. The very thing I rooted out, you brought it right back, and you had even made it grow and proliferate. There was even more money changing, even more uh, things that were an affront to his father. And Jesus said, I cleaned it out at the beginning, and I'm going to clean it out one more time as a testimony against you that I told you three years ago this 
must stop. And your answer to me was, no, it won't. And they brought it all back in again. And so many people, God speaks to them about sin in their life, and Jesus says, it must go. I'm clearing it out. And people said, you're not around. I'm bringing it back in. And Jesus inspects them. But to make sure that everyone knew that he was truly Lord of the temple, just like he was Lord of the Sabbath, he was Lord of the temple, he does it again. He second, uh, after the triumphal entry, he does not allow anyone to carry their wares. He says, he says this, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves, robbing the people, charging double, triple uh, multiplications of even the price of a dove, robbing young widows, turning it into a market. Now, this didn't go over well. It didn't go over well the first time. He does it during Passover season. There's thousands upon thousands of people there. The high priest and the religious leaders, they already hated Jesus. Caiaphas, he was the high priest at the time. He actually served as high priest from A.D. 18 to A.D. 36, which was an unusually long time for a high priest to serve under Roman rule. Roman rule didn't usually let high priests serve that long. They liked to mix it up on a regular basis to keep them under thumb. But Caiaphas served a long time. That was a long tenure for a high priest during that time, which tells us that he very likely had a very close relationship with the Roman government. A lot of back-scratching going on. A lot of under-the-table deals and relationships. He had a close relationship with the Herodian dynasty, Herod. But Caiaphas, his hatred for Jesus seems particularly personal. Why do we know this? Every time Caiaphas is mentioned in Scripture, the Scripture says in some way, shape, or form that he was seeking to kill or destroy Jesus. Why was Caiaphas, who had the long tenure, so threatened by Jesus? Jesus was everything Caiaphas wasn't. Caiaphas loved money. Jesus loved people. Caiaphas was prideful, Jesus was humble. Caiaphas told lies, Jesus told the truth. Caiaphas was given great responsibility, Jesus is the giver of all things. And Caiaphas knew that Jesus really was changing some lives, and people really were being transformed. And Lazarus really was risen from the dead. We need to end this guy. I, it boggles my mind that if you knew a guy could actually heal people and raise them dead, you would actually want to eliminate them. But that's the way Caiaphas felt. And that's the way his entourage of leaders felt. They had to take him out. Those working for Caiaphas there in Bethany, they were watching. They were watching. The, they were there just outside when Jesus was having the feast. They were plotting to kill Lazarus, plotting to kill Jesus. They were there when Jesus enters on the triumphal entry. They were there and they saw. They're watching Jesus like a hawk. He has a group that's constantly monitoring everywhere Jesus goes, keeping notes, watching everything he does. They were there when he cleansed the temple. No doubt they came back and told Caiaphas, he's done it again. What? He cleansed the temple a second time. Caiaphas must, veins must have popped out. Who does he think he is? That's my temple. I'm the high priest around here. But he was inspecting them too, and they were intent on finding sin or some 
unmistakable flaw that they could use to present him as a fraud to the people. And once they presented him as a fraud to the people, they could condemn him to death. But Jesus, of course, he knows their schemes. And nonetheless, being humble and to fulfill the scriptures, knowing their schemes, knowing their fraudulent intentions, he still presents himself as a lamb. Remember, this is a back and forth of inspection. He's inspecting Jerusalem. He looked over Jerusalem. This is the same time period we looked over Jerusalem, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you, but you are not willing. He inspected the whole city and found the whole city. He said, you're not willing. You don't really want me. He wasn't fooled by the praise, was he? Don't be fooled by the praise of man. He wasn't fooled by that. He wasn't fooled by throngs coming to the temple. Well, that must mean they all love my father. But then he looked around the temple and said, but you don't love my father. Well, you guys want me to be king. That must mean you love me. You don't. Give it a few days. He's inspecting them. They're inspecting him. Well, they would go on um, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 22. We don't have time to read the text here. But three different instances uh, the Pharisees come, and they try and, they try and trip up Jesus. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus blows their mind and comes back and explains to them. In uh, Matthew 22, verse 21, Jesus says, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, to God the things that are God. And when they had heard these things, they marveled, and they left and went their way. They were like, we thought we had him dead to rights. And he comes up with an answer that's like an arrow through us. Pharisees gave their shot. The Sadducees gave their shot on the resurrection. The Sadducees come in who they don't believe in the resurrection. They're like, we'll trip him up on the resurrection. We've got the great, we've been practicing this question for three years. He'll never figure this one out. When we ask him, what if the woman had been married seven times? Aha. Whose Whose husband? Who, who will she be married to in the resurrection? And Jesus says, you're mistaken. Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. And it goes on to say, now these guys, not only did they have their tails between their legs, and they couldn't find the right answer, but it says when the multitudes heard it, they were astonished. Now the multitudes said, wow, even more people. Now remember, every time Jesus inspected, and no fault is found, everyone is more guilty of what they will then finally do. Because now they have even more truth they're accountable for. And then lastly comes the scribes. They inspect him by saying, which is the greatest commandment? Had to be the Pharisees. If you ever see Jesus said that he would have to be, you know, he would go up and the chief priests and the rulers, they would be the ones that would condemn him. But they would condemn him after they first tried to find fault, couldn't find fault, then they would present a kangaroo court in the middle of the night and trump up false charges. They could find no fault. And he presents himself and passes every test. But then lastly, we'll close with his purchase, the most important thing. See, Jesus came not just to be, all of it had to be fulfilled. He had to come on the 10th for lamb selection. He had to be inspected as the lamb had to be inspected. But he also was there to do his father's business and to inspect them too and to serve notice that all of you are guilty. Not that he wanted to pronounce judgment, 
but that they would know. It's when you came to realize you were guilty that the cross was beautiful to you. If you don't think you're guilty, just carry on. Do whatever you always did before. If the cross is not, look, I'm not guilty. I'm a pretty good guy. I pay my taxes. I'm way better than my neighbor. So I don't really need any. I'm a good person. But Jesus was there to proclaim Jerusalem, none of you are good people. There's one good, he said, but God. The rest of you all will need a lamb. See, the way the Passover lamb worked, everyone needed, the, 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 it was, you had the daily sacrifice in the temple. You had the sacrifice in the morning. You had the sacrifice in the evening. But with the Passover, everyone had to bring a lamb for their household. And the only reason it was per household is because it would have taken, imagine when they were trying to get out of Egypt for the night of the Passover, uh, imagine if you had to kill two million lambs. But it was per household. It was still, just do the math, uh, even the night they left Egypt, you're talking about a couple hundred thousand lambs had to be slain and the blood applied to the door. What was God saying with the Passover? That it's personal, that every single person in the household, every person, and he basically from a time constraint, otherwise it would have been one lamb per every person, but one per household. But Jesus came to purchase salvation for people that hated and despised him, misunderstood him, would turn their back on him, put a knife in his back, if you will, if you're Judas. But he came. In Matthew 27, 42, it said, when he was on the cross, he comes before Pilate. Actually, just before the cross, he comes before Pilate. The last one to inspect Jesus was a Gentile ruler. Remember what Pilate said? He said, I find no fault in the man. None. He, Pilate tried to wash his hands, as if you could do that. Pilate tried to wash his hands and say, your blood, the blood is on your hands. I'm, I'm not guilty... This man is innocent. Pilate's wife said, do not kill this man. I had a wild, bad dream. Do not, do not touch this man. And Pilate, because he loved power as much as Caiaphas, couldn't stand the pressure of what it could mean to his own political power. And he gave in and said, I, I don't find any fault in him, but go ahead, do what, do what you want to do. Do what you need to do. And when he was on the cross, the, the priest and the... Um, Religious leaders, they mocked him. In Matthew 27, 42, it says, they said to Jesus, he saved others, himself he cannot save. They're talking about Lazarus and others. If he is really the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. All the other stuff, we don't believe. You raised Lazarus from the dead, wonderful. You walked on water, great. We couldn't find any fault on you, Pilate can't find any fault on you. No one can find any fault in you. But we still don't believe. If you come down off the cross, we'll believe. But if Jesus comes down off the cross, we all have a problem. He could have come off the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels. No one actually took Jesus' life. He laid it down. He made the payment on his own. He wasn't a lamb that was strapped down. He was a lamb that laid down. You know, a few thousand years earlier, right there on the same mountain, I'm talking about the city of Jerusalem, 
Abraham saddled a donkey. He took Isaac to the exact same temple mount. Same, where the temple, where the, where the Dome of the Rock sits today is exactly where Abraham took Isaac. You think Jesus knew that when he walked into the temple? That he was fulfilling the exact same, riding on a donkey, Isaac was brought there. Now, Isaac was a picture of Christ. Jesus is brought there. But Isaac didn't die on Mount Moriah, and neither did Jesus. The temple is built on Mount Moriah. Jesus dies outside the city. A lamb is substituted for Isaac, but a lamb is substituted for all of us in Christ. And Jesus comes. And in Moses' Passover... Death was avoided. But in Jesus, he confronts death head on and destroys death with his own death. During this Passover season, it's estimated. It's estimated that more than 250,000 Passover lambs were killed right around the same time. In Jerusalem, we don't know the exact year, by the way. If you want to do a study, I do the study and my head spins every year. The more I study it to try and figure out, did Jesus die in 80, 31, 32, 33? Was, it, uh, was, it, did he, was he crucified on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday? These debates rage. Here's what we know. He, he was selected on the 10th, and that week, and there's a lot of ways you can look at how certain things God just just when you get to heaven, you'll fully understand the whole story. He'll make it crystal clear. You'll have a lot of aha moments. Like, why did I miss that? But here's what we know. During that time, up, uh, Josephus tells us that up to 3 million people, the city swelled to over 3 million. This is a mega city for those days. It wasn't normally that size. Jerusalem 50, 100,000 people normally inside the actually city wall compound. Over 3 million people packed, not just inside the city, but outside the city. And if you do the math, you divide by 10, you have somewhere between 250,000 and 300,000 Passover lambs. Can you imagine the amount of blood that flowed in Jerusalem during the Passover feast? Any of you that thought the Passover was one lamb? No. Many lambs for every household that came for pilgrimage. But Hebrews 10.4 says this, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The, the picture is stunning. There is a mountain of lamb's blood, and Jesus says, all of that mountain of lamb's blood, if you wanted to fill it up and fill a river, can't help you. I am the only lamb. Behold, behold the lamb of God. The only, my blood is worth far more than 300,000 or 250,000 lambs that are shed. Peter said in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. I love this. He goes, from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. That was all of us before Christ. It's called, Peter calls it aimless conduct but with the precious blood of Christ. Listen to Peter's words. You were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Do you think Peter understood the whole Passover thing? He said you were of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
And Peter says, and trust me, I was there. I denied him three times that night. Peter was forgiven of that. But he would, he would love the cross even more because he realized if Peter at times didn't think he was a wretch, matter, Peter was like, hey, everyone else will deny you, but I will not. Jesus said, uh, even tonight, Peter, before the cock crows, you'll have denied me. Three times, you'll have acted exactly the way the people that turned on me. You'll do the same thing. And so would you have I, amen? But Peter would be delivered from all that. But he goes on to say, he was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. He said he came to Jerusalem for you. He purchased our salvation with his own blood. 300,000 lambs can't help you. Religious experience, pilgrimage, going to Shabbat, doing the Passover feast, doing a Seder, which are beautiful, by the way, all those things, you cannot receive salvation through any of these things. I'll close with a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He said, Is not the gospel its own sign and wonder? Is not this a miracle of miracles that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish? Surely that precious word, whosoever will, let him come and take the water of life freely. And that solemn promise, him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out, are better than signs and wonders. A truthful Savior ought to be believed. He is truth itself. Why will you ask of proof of the veracity of the one who cannot lie? That's our lamb. That's the Passover lamb. Amen?